Welcome to Spiritual Grit, the podcast where we talk real talk about spirituality through the lens of activism and social justice. What happens when activism and spiritual practices collide? What sparks of change call for the grit we need to create meaningful strides in social justice? I'm your host, Leslie Ann Hobayan, poet, priestess, activist, professor, hip-hop dancer, and badass mama. Join me as we dive in to learn more about our deepest selves so that we can be better ancestors to create a stellar world for our descendants. Grab your dancing shoes and let's get groovy with the grit right now. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Spiritual Grit. How are you on this beautiful day? I'm so excited. Today is an awesome day because I have a guest, which I haven't had in a very long time because all the things, Um, but I will introduce my guest and then we will see what unfolds. So here we go. Should I say your name or should I leave it? No, I'm going to leave it till the end is like a little guess who I'm talking about kind of thing. Um, All right, so this person is a Pushcart Prize winning poet, translator, and professor who has published 15 books. He started when he was one, um, including The Many Uses of Mint, New and Selected Poems. Along with Tina Chang and Natalie Natalie Handal, he co-edited Norton's Language for a New Century, Contemporary Poetry for the Middle East, Asia, and Beyond. Um, and Nadine Gordimer had some beautiful words to say, calling it a beautiful achievement for world literature. Um, he's got a very long list bio, but I don't want to take up our airtime with all that. So let's just say that he's, has done all the things we have talked about haunted residencies and all kinds of things. Um, a lot of the folks in my community know him as the founder of Drunken Boat, which is an amazing, um, electronic or e-journal online journal, one of the one of the first um, back in the day. And his newest book is called Correctional. It's a memoir um, about his experiences of being in a correctional facility. Um, so he currently teaches at Tufts. So if y'all are in Boston area, go take his class. Um, but let us welcome to the show, Dr. Ravi Shaikar. Oh, such a pleasure, Leslie, and to, to be here with you. How are you? Good. I mean, I was a little better when I uh, was seeing you at VCCA and we were able to hang out in person and have delicious dinners made for us, but this will have to do. Yes. And, and so much good conversations were were had there. Um, For those who don't know, uh, writing residencies are the bomb. So if you can find yourself there, you should go because it's not just about writing time. It's about talking with other artists, you know, and really engaging in in the practices of how we're really being in the world. Um, so yeah, so we'll talk more about that, but I wanna start us off because this is a magical podcast and very loud oracle cards um, <laughs> with this um, with this oracle deck called the secret language of light. Now, Ravi, do you know anything about what's called light language? I don't know if I do, you'll have to enlighten me. Oh, all right. All right. I don't know if I myself can define it, but I can get near to describing what it might be. Um, So these cards are based on messages that one may receive from the other world, um, from the spiritual world, from the the ethers. 
And let's just see what card wants to come forward today. Um, okay, here we go. Soul name. Soul name. Wow, that looks like a powerful yeah. one. Yeah. So for those of you listening, I'm sorry. I always say this. I'm sorry you can't see the card. <laughs> but we've got a really brilliant sunburst of light coming from the center of the card. And then there's a temple built around it, which is really, really cool. Um, all right. And it's the first card of the deck. So that that has some significance. So unlock the mysteries of your soul. Here we go. You are or about to receive the name of your soul. Your soul name acts as a link between your inner and outer worlds, enabling you to merge authentic wisdom into your everyday experiences and create a life from your heart. You placed your soul name in your heart before you were born. As you explore your inner world and open your heart, you will discover the name of your beautiful essence. You are ready to awaken your heart and know its absolute fullness. You are safe to discover, connect, and receive. All your dreams and desires will be realized with an open heart. Ask for and be open to receiving the name of your soul. It may arrive in a way you don't expect, but when it comes to you, you will know it is authentic by the way it feels. Liberate your heart and soul and know you are worth it. Hmm. So how, yeah, have you, um, do you, under, do you, have you heard about this concept of having a soul name? I have, I think it's similar in some ways to a spirit animal it actually made me think of, um, I, I don't know if you give uh, names to your vehicles that you drive, um, but I always kind of wait for some kind of uh, visitation or a whisper in my ear. And um, my, my first car was this really crappy Ford Escort uh, manual. And I just had this dream that um, she was called Muffy. And so I had, I like put her name, which is not the name I would have given her, but I dreamt it. And I was like, oh, this is the sole name of this car. And so I put oh. it in like little glitter letters on the old dashboard. So oh yeah, a, di a different uh, connection. I love that. No, but I love that. I, okay. So it's funny because I know a lot of people do name their vehicles, but I, I, I haven't, like I, I listened for it, but I'm just like, it's just the blue car, you know, <laughs> like there's no, no name, but I get a little jealous when people have names for their cars and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, of course that, that, that car, you know, Wait, is uh, Surya Gyan your soul name? It is, it is. Well, it's so interesting because I, I, as you're asking me, I knew you're going to ask that question. I, I was like, what's the difference between soul name and spiritual name? You know, like, I don't mm. know that they're, they're, they're there's a different quality to those two things. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure, but Surya Gyan is a spiritual name that I received from one of my teachers. And um, it's based on a numerology um, practice, you know, your date of birth, time of birth, location, all that stuff. <clears throat> and it is naming the, the thing, the essence that you already are. So it's a reminder mm -hmm. of who mm -hmm. you are so that all of the layers that you have, you know, been given that were put on you, all the conditioning, all the, you know, garbage of the human world yeah. can be peeled away to reveal the thing that you already are. So you've got this little reminder to say, hey, right. don't forget, this is who well, you it's, are. It's very powerful. You probably know Surya is kind of the uh, supreme deity in Hinduism and yeah. uh, comes from the Sanskrit word for sun mm -hmm. and kind of courage and vitality all are contained in it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have all this wisdom to share apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, let your light shine. This is, this is me just talking. Um, <clears throat> so what about, what about you and your relationship with this idea of a soul name or a spiritual name? I don't know if they're interchangeable. I don't, but well, I, well, I do, I do think what you're talking about in some ways should be conferred on to you by a, a master in some way. And so I, I know friends who have become Buddhist monks and have been given a name um, by uh, who they studied with. And so, I mean, I, because I've never embarked upon like a, a uh, structured form of study. I don't know that I've been given a soul name, although um, I, I feel like uh, when I'm writing, I almost abide in a nameless uh, space when I'm really in the flow. And that to me seems like a very, uh, it's, it's a place where I'm somehow able to transcend the very act of naming. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've often wanted a soul name because I share the name of this very famous Indian musician and it's my, been my great curse and blessing since I was a young boy. So, uh, yeah, how how should I find my soul name? Uh, well, I, have you let me just back it up a little bit. Have you met this musician? Because I did I did see him. I was like, let's search up Ravi to see what comes up. And this musician came up and I was like, oh, all right. Oh, yeah. Well, I actually um, was meant to interview him a couple of times and he got, got sick once in Boston. And I had met um, both of his daughters, um, Anushka and uh, Nora Jones, uh, briefly. And I wrote this uh, eulogy for him when he passed away. But you know, when I was very young, um, I would get it all the time because he was still probably the most famous Indian musician anyone in the West had heard of. He was yeah. at Woodstock and, you know, played with the Beatles and, you know, uh, so uh, I would get it all the time. Like, oh, I have to play the sitar or people trying to make yeah. jokes. And yeah. after a while, it's like, okay. Um, and uh, it made me realize early on that, you know, the label, the thing that you're called isn't who you are and you can determine who you want to be. And you're, you're kind of given this name that accrues certain kinds of meanings, but it shouldn't delimit you in any way. Um, so. Right. Right. Well, it's so funny because I'm like, well, maybe just that name was a little boost to launch you into like literary fame. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. like magic. Well, I am the third most. There actually is. I don't know if you found him. Sri Sri Ravi Shankar of the oh. Art of Living. He's a he's a, a spiritual guru and who who's you know spread uh, his wisdom around the world. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think I'm the third most famous Ravi Shankar. Uh, <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, well, according to the guidebook, there there is a way. I mean meditation is the way to listen for your soul name, mm. right? It's about being open to receive it. So my suggestion, if you are looking to listen for your soul name is to, is to, you know, set the space for calm, um, to sit in meditation and mm. to, to call on your spirit guides, your ancestors and say, okay, can I have a little hint? Like just straight up ask, like, you know, what is my soul name? And it it may come to you or it may not. It may take some time to yeah. meditate over a period of time before it's revealed. It it may not even happen that way. It could happen in a dream. It could be like someone calls you by the wrong name, mm. but it energetically, it lands with resonance in your body that you're like, wait, that's familiar. 
you know, uh-huh. so you don't know. You know, I've never actually set that as an intention when I've done my sitting practice or really listened for it. So I will, I'm, I'm going to do that. I will get okay. back to you about that. Yeah. Right, yeah. Let me know what happens. It'll be like, your name is Ravi. <laughs> your soul name is Ravi. You're, you're, you're correctly named. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least that is, a, you know, you're kind of privately listening for something and making yourself a channel. But it reminds me of, because, you know, one of the things we were, we were going to talk about is my own and your spiritual journey. And uh, um, I have been in a space where um, people have been speaking in tongues and yeah, there have been yeah. prayers put upon me to speak in tongues. Um, but I was, you know, unable to. I spoke some uh, in Tamil instead to just like throw them off the scent. But I, I mean, I wanted to and I tried to, but that was like a much more communal, uh, strange Christian experience uh, when I was a royal well, reign. Let's talk about so. that. That seems like a good opening to to go into that to that stuff, because um, I know when, when we've talked about it, you said that you were raised Hindu. So you were mentioning a Christian experience. And I'm like, well, wait, how did you even get there? You know, because, yeah. So why don't you talk about that? Uh, yeah, so you know, my uh, um, parents uh, immigrated from uh, Chennai and Coimbatore in South India in the late 1960s. You know, part of the first wave of Asian immigrants who could come over after all of those exclusion acts. I mean, the whole history of immigration law and all kinds of other jurisprudence in the U.S. is deeply uh, racist and problematic. But he was able to come over to um, be an engineer at Howard, but really brought this idea of India from the 1950s with him and wanted to raise my sisters and I uh, completely Hindu. And so we lived in a, a devout, uh, we, there were, we were also Brahmin. And so uh, we were veg- raised vegetarian. We used mm-hmm. to go to some beautiful Hindu temples. There's one in DC and one in Pittsburgh um, that we'd make kind of a little pilgrimage um, for. And uh, all of the liturgy there, I, th- I actually think of this as part of what turned me into a poet, because um, the Vadiar, the priest, would be reciting these mantras in Sanskrit, which is a language I didn't understand, and yet I felt deeply moved, uh, and I felt like the language was entering my bloodstream in some way. Yeah. And yeah. so that, that feeling of like being moved by things you don't quite understand rationally is part of the powerful experience of poetry for me, I think. Um, but yes, so, so yes, we were supposed to be really Hindu. We had a little altar in the house. I mean, I, you know, the one thing I'll just say is there's a misnomer. Hinduism doesn't really exist. It's a kind of catch-all term for various different sets of beliefs uh, and practices, right? So you could worship Kali and believe right. in animal sacrifice, or you right. could be- Different uh, devotions, right? So, yeah. so what's your all, flavor of Hindu? <laughs> we're actually uh, Shivites. So uh, okay. Shiva- you know, in the Hindu trinity, Vishnu, uh, uh, Shiva, and Brahma are mm-hmm. kind of the three gods, the destroyer, the creator, and the preserver, right? So Shiva is the destroyer. Uh, but also, um, yes, the, you know, in Indian culture, who it's not just what kind of, that you're Brahmin, but are you an Ayur? Are you an Iyengar Brahmin? I mean, there's all of this kind of caste stuff, which mm-hmm. you know, I only learned about later in life. But um, yeah, so we were meant to be kind of Indian Hindu Indians, though we were living in America. My father wanted to shield us from the dirty American culture, but dirty Christianity. Overridden, <laughs> overridden by another impulse, which is his deep and abiding thriftiness. And mm-hmm. so when all my friends were joining Boy Scouts, it was like, oh, Boy Scouts got an annual dues 
of like, you know, 200 bucks a year or whatever. And he he found out that that there was this other option through the assembly of God called the Royal Rangers, which was free. Uh, and so he he was like, oh, you could just do this. You do some of the same stuff. And actually, it turned out to be a kind of interesting uh, experience. I did do a lot of outdoor wilderness stuff. But he was like, oh, whenever they talk about Jesus, just think about Ganesha. You'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. So that's I how that. I kind of ended up in this like Christian Boy Scouts. And actually, very early on, had to like, you know, read the Old Testament, the New Testament. And I've always, I think, from a young age, been interested in different spiritual practices and faiths. So, um, but no, I didn't want to be a Royal Ranger. I was like embarrassed. I hid it from my friends. Like I'm imagining like the, um, the Canadian Mounties, you know, like. <laughs> we did have those khaki uniforms and like, yes, we did have, there was a little peak cap. But, yeah. you know, you would go around, I mean, you would do things like kayaking and rappelling. And I learned to, uh, wow. I was actually very good at throwing a tomahawk. I won a trophy for tomahawk throw. Wow. Uh, I could make like, uh, if you know, I could identify edible uh, roots in the woods and make a fire with flint and steel. And so I like learning all of that. But then there was this Christian component. And sometimes, especially at the powwows, they'd have this big bonfire and you'd have these kind of... Uh, Royal Ranger commander slash proselytizing preachers who was, you know, telling anyone who wanted to uh, let go of their sin and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior to come up. And some of the kids would start speaking in, in tongues in what sounded, I mean, in some cases, because I knew one of these guys, like Aramaic or something. And I know that he was not in his normal life, wasn't very bright. I don't think he could have made it up. So it was, you know, yeah. pretty unusual experience and I also wanted to be transported into that space but I just really couldn't be whoa so here okay so many things so when when okay first were there any boys who you genuinely thought were speaking in tongues I mean yeah. you're a kid so yeah I, I mean there were a couple that where yeah, I mean, I was, of course, deeply skeptical, but um, some of these kids who I had hung out with all of a sudden were making these, uh, they weren't incoherent sounds. They were sounds I didn't understand that had a syntax to them. Okay, and, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then, so, and then, and so then you're, some you're people were like crying and weeping and like, you know, kind of like dancing. These stayed commanders, like, kind of the, were being possessed by the Holy Ghost, and so you know, I would see this kind of happening around me, and it was, you know, very unusual. So, paint the picture for me demographically. <laughs> were you, was it mostly white boys? Yes. Okay, so it's you and this other kid who's speaking Aramaic <laughs> that are the brown kids of the of the group. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so what was there? He's a black kid. Yeah. Who, uh, um, my friend, Dan, I'm actually still in touch with him. Uh, oh, wow. We should have yeah. him on the show. You guys can talk about it. <laughs> I want to find out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so it was, it was a very strange, uh, kind of experience. And I would like, it just was like one part of my life. I never could integrate it with the other parts. And I think yeah. that I learned to compartmentalize these different sections but yeah and I think that's that's standard for children of immigrants right mm -hmm. because we're caught in that in-between space of we don't know where we belong <clears throat> we're definitely not like in the world of our parents but we're we're not part of America either 
you know? Exactly. So we're just gonna stand by and watch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And let things unfold and then be a different way at home. You know, there's always the home versus outside the home. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I realized pretty early on that the ways in which I needed to be a dutiful uh, Indian son who made his parents proud uh, would be quite a social liability out in the world, you know, in my elementary school and other stuff. And so and I, it actually kills me. I mean, all, most immigrant uh, family Americans have the kind of food story. Right. And I, my mom used to make me these little thali lunches. I mean, what I wouldn't do for them now. And I would be right? so that I was like dumping it out in this bush, like on the way to the bus stop because, I, you know, I would get teased for it. And yeah. it's like, huh, you know, um, and yes, there's such a, a large where we lived in Northern Virginia, too. We were one of the very I don't think there were any other South Asians. And so the homogenizing force of that conformity weighed very heavily on a young boy's shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. So not only so not only so you just added another layer to this picture of the Royal Rangers around a bonfire. Not only is it Christian and white, but it's also in the South. So, I mean, not like the deep South, but still South. Right. And so yeah. as a young brown boy who's Hindu watching all these things unfold, what was it in you that wanted to speak tongues and then just was like, oh, I'm not just going to speak Tamil and I'm not going to know. Like, you know, like what's going on in your mind at that, 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 wow. young, that young boy mind? Yeah, you know, I think it was um, wanting to fit in and be accepted by whomever I was with at that time. And then, even that, though it was crazy, even though it was crazy, and it was like, I, I was like, I knew it was crazy. And I was like, uh, you know, this is. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and my other buddy, uh, both of us would kind of like make fun of a, a lot of these guys. I mean, he was more, not, he would like uh, unstake people's uh, tents in the middle of the night and stuff. So he was a kind of a naughty dude, that guy. Um, but um, at the same time, uh, there was something about being in uh, under a starry sky with this enormous bonfire and mm -hmm. seeing these people like kind of transform that was both kind of repulsive and uh, magnetic and fascinating at the same time. And then mm -hmm. as a little boy, it's like, yes, I want to get caught up in the pageantry of this. And at the same time, uh, there, there's no way, like this belief system is not really speaking to me in, in my essential core. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'm imagining it's like, you want to step into it, but also not. It's like, yeah. do I go in? Do I not? Like, I want to be part of it. It feels safer in there because I belong but then no I just want to step back um so fascinating <laughs> this whole thing is <laughs> like oh my god how old were you during this time uh you know I did do I mean I was in it for quite some time I think from like uh nine to 14 or 15 like I actually wow. won the gold medal of achievement which is like the eagle scouts of the royal rangers and you have Whoa. to win all of these like little different awards I mean, some of which were like, you know, knot tying and fire making, but then others were like, uh, I had to like memorize all of the books of the Bible and wow. be able to like, uh, you know. Wow. So. Wow. Cause my, my first thought was like, all these white dudes were like, we made good guys. We converted a brown boy. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're going to give him the gold award. 
yeah. I mean, there was that sense too that I mean, and my mom would experience it that that people would treat her a little bit like uh, a heathen. Or um, when I used to play Dungeons and Dragons on the bus, uh, you know, and before I realized that oh, that's not what I really want to do. Uh, that um, I was like uh, a, a friend's parents said that oh, like these demons and sorcerers are, uh, you know, represent of the Antichrist, and you shouldn't be and. And then the idea that uh, Hindus are um, worshiping uh, pagan idols, right, which is yeah. not at all true. In fact, each of the deities, when you go to a Hindu temple, um, represents an aspect of the divine, which is an innumerable, unquantifiable entity. But, you know, right. when you pray to Lakshmi, it's like the manifestation of wealth and Ganesha is the god of auspiciousness and new beginnings. And so they're, but they're not like, it's not like you're actually paying homage to this stone statue, which right. is what uh, right. the Christians would say. Yeah. And I, you know, I found- you don't bother to learn about the the thing that's not theirs. You know what I mean? No, right. Oh, so yeah. Assumptions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me how that experience, which is like those nine to 14, such impressionable age, right? On top of being, you know, like children of immigrants um, and brown in the South, how has that shaped where you are now in relationship to your spirituality and your writing? Hmm. if they're even connected so I, i'm just realizing that it was probably i was actually probably a little older like 10 because i was in i'm an in correctional memoir i write about this time that while i was kind of in school in northern virginia uh my father's mother uh my th uh, uh amama got ill uh had actually a form of uh cancer and so because in Indian families, Dharma duty is the most important thing. Yes. We just picked up and moved and uh, moved back to India. And so for like 18 months, I lived and went to school uh, at MAK Convent, this Indian school in Madras, and wow. went to a lot of Hindu temples where I had my head shaved, actually. And I, wow. bathed, I bathed in Varanasi and the Ganges and mm. uh, went to all of these, um, some really ancient uh, temples. And then... Um, I, I came back to the U.S. and I think that I, I must have been like, uh, yes, 10 or 11 and went back to school. And that's when I joined the Royal Rangers. And so I had this confusion of amazing and at the same time, um, really disturbing kinds of images from my time in India. I mean, I loved it. I I, I, I think um, some of the I went to like a cave temple um, where there was like uh, snake eggs and it was like a, for a young boy truly transformative and then I also saw unimaginable poverty we spent time in the slums in Mumbai and uh, Bombay uh, and then taking all of those experiences back to the U.S. where it's like regular Johnny it's like I couldn't I didn't have the language I couldn't even put into words what I'd experienced and it was like oh this this magical stuff is what you're going to tease me about and so I'm going to keep all of this private uh, and, and you know, I'm, I am, you consider me different than you. I am different than you. And in fact, I'm going to kind of revel in that separateness, which is kind of ultimately, I think, and then I describe in the memoir, what got me into trouble way down the road. So, Well, that, that feels like an interruption, like a really important interruption. <laughs> Don't mind me while I have a coughing fit. <clears throat> um, and so you mentioned ecstatic experiences 
So I want to hear a little bit more about that and how that brings you to where you are now. Mm. And yes, and you made the connection about writing. And so for me, uh, poetry in its uh, most effective sense is building a bridge between the, the visible and the invisible in some way and ma manifesting. And I have very few poems to do this, but there are, are some where I feel like the wisdom that I'm expressing in the music and form or something other than what I'm capable of. I've somehow become a, a receptacle in some way, which sounds really oracular. Um, but I, I do believe that, um, it, you know, these uh, experiences, ecstatic experiences, and I did have another very seminal experience when I was in college uh, with my friend, uh, uh, you know, kind of we were hiking in, in the mountains and, um, you know, we'd uh, eaten some uh, mushrooms, I must be said, but we had this kind of like moment where I just, um, I saw very clearly the, the vitality and enormity of the universe surging through every cell of everything around me. And I was somehow part of it. And I, I wasn't separate from it. I was part of the natural landscape. Um, and I was given a sense of, um, you know, uh, of, of purpose and direction in some way. My cosmic egg had been cracked open. And so, you know, I've had a, and I feel like as a poet, I'm trying to sometimes put those kinds of revelatory experiences into words. Um, and, and that's the challenge because a lot of these experiences are word, wordless. They transcend language. Uh, and, um, but yeah, so I, I think though, ultimately, I mean, later in life, I came to Buddhism uh, as a, a practice that made the most sense to me because rather than being concerned about the afterlife or it's really a philosophy of, um, uh, of living in the present moment and reducing your unhappiness here and now uh, and helping other people as well through kind of compassionate connection um, to achieve their fullest potential. And so, yeah, Buddhism is what, it, it, even though I had this like background in Hinduism and, and Christianity and, um, you know, I've learned about Judaism and Islam, uh, I think Buddhism is the philosophy that most has resonated with me. I am thinking about what you said after having your experience with some sacred plants mm. um, and trying to capture that with language. Because one of the things as poets specifically, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be poetist. <laughs> you know, I know there are writers out there be like, but blah, blah, blah. No, 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 poets are different. <clears throat> um we have, I believe, a connection with the invisible more so than others. And our job is to try to communicate that in in very with very limited tools. Language is is limiting. People are like, but you got a bazillion words. Yeah, but those words don't capture the exact essence of the thing that we're trying to create or communicate. So how has, what has the, what have the attempts been like for you to capture the experience that you had of having, and I love the cosmic egg being cracked open. I love that image. Um, <clears throat> what has that process been like and have you been successful 
with it or not. And success, of course, is subjective, right? It's whatever your idea of success is. Mm. Um, so yeah, talk a little bit about that process because we're connecting now the spiritual moment with a way to make it tangible. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know if, if it was successful. My very first book, Instrumentality, published a long time ago, I have a poem about that experience called Shaking Free of an Epiphany. And, you know, because the other thing is that state, uh, that ecstatic state does not last. And then you're left with this memory and some doubt and like, oh, you return back to your quotidian life and um, you have to carry with you whatever you learned and maybe it transforms you or maybe you forget about it. Uh, so, uh, yes, I, I kind of wrote that poem. I, I think when I think of um, poets like Rumi or Emily Dickinson or Hart Crane, who's one of my favorites, uh, there's a way in which language is used to approximate because words are representations after all. We do we might have an enormous palette, um, but when it comes to writing about uh, spiritual experience, um, you can only gesture towards it. I don't think you can ever really um, capture capture it. In, in, um, but, um, you know, I, I think um, metaphor is a really powerful device when it comes to trying to find uh, an approximation or a comparison for um, what you've gone through. Um, and yes, and music too. I mean, I, I think uh, I have, um, I have in one of my books, um, I, I call them little post pastorals, but I wrote all of these poems about encounters with nature that are all in a similar form in four tercets, four little three line stanzas. And that to me was a very um, spiritual and meditative experience because I willed myself to be in the natural world, um, kind of communi communing with it and trying to really allow the object to speak through me or, you know, the the living, whatever it was. Uh, and so all the poems in that book are things, creatures I, and living organisms I had an actual encounter with. Um, yeah, you know, I think like much of making art uh, is cultivating greater awareness to the world around you. And um, doing that is also a practice of living, can be a practice of living well, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So that is where I'm trying to hopefully combine my literary practice with, you know, my ethical sense of being in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a few times, and I, I love what you said about approximating, you know, like we get close, but we don't get quite there exactly. How do you yourself, like as you, because I have my own answer, but <clears throat> how do you, how are you okay with that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how do you not get frustrated or dissatisfied with not with getting close, but not exact, well, if that's even a thing that you experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that in some ways, it's almost like in mathematics, um, there's an asymptote, right? And you have a line that's like getting closer and closer to, but it's never going to reach it. And it's actually a good thing, because if you did arrive there, you probably would stop writing. Why would you keep going? You're like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. nailed it. Uh, and now, you know, I can and, die now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's both the challenge and the fact that um, you, when you different um, approaches and different kinds of approximations, it's almost like a, looking through a kaleidoscope. You have all of these different ways in which you can get closer. 
Um, and, you know, there are some Zen koans and other things that are meant to um, kind of jostle you out of your normal everyday form of um, awareness so that you mm -hmm. see, them. because I think that is the thing that I try to fight in my own life and in my work is um, the habituated patterns that have been taught to us that don't allow us to see the full glory and miracle of what it is to be alive and yeah. to treat other people with, you know, empathy and compassion because they're no different than us. I mean, we let kind of rhetoric and politics and all of these voices cloud us up. And, uh, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, what was that? Poet Malarme said, the job of poetry is to clean our word-clogged reality, uh, which I really love. I yeah. like that one. I like that. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, yeah, that's sort of the point of poetry, right? Is to is to be continually curious about how close we can get to that approximation. You know, instead of being like, oh, I missed the target again. Oh, you know, it's like, no, let's see. Let's get curious about that. All right. Can I get a little closer? Can I get a little closer? There's the challenge in it. And it really is all about framing how we're doing it, because there could be those, you know, the stereotypical um, image of the poet who's like always drinking, smoking a cigarette you know, subsisting on crackers and water, you know, <laughs> and a typewriter, like all curmudgeon old man, other rice of poetry, right? Or there's the poet who can celebrate being alive and being here and, and capturing it in language that can be mirrored back to people to say, hey, humans, it's not all, you know, doom and gloom. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I think poetry has always kind of existed on the margins today. It's not, you know, you're not going to earn a ton of money with poetry. So you can really critique or write from any um, perspective or stance. And I think that that is pretty exciting. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really interesting way to frame like, oh, poets don't get paid anyway. So do whatever you want. <laughs> like, you know, if poets were paid like football players, that would be a different story. <laughs> We would have some interesting. Oh art. yeah. Oh God, I don't know. It'd be weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said something earlier when you were talking about Buddhism that I was that I was curious about. Um, you said the word unhappiness, and I wanted to ask you more about that. Are are you of that of that position that we're here and we're unhappy, and our goal is to transcend or <clears throat> no i think though that um we can what I, I find compelling is this idea that we get caught in this cycle of desire that can never be fulfilled and so we are taught to kind of crave something and you you work towards it you want it and then you acquire it and it no longer satisfies you and you have to go on and so to be in that state of perpetual craving and wanting something that you don't possess makes it so that you are not uh, grateful for all that you have in a given moment and able to kind of, uh, you know, rely on the fullness of that. Um, it always feels like you're lacking something. So it's more about shifting away from the focus, shifting the focus away from what you don't have and just being in the present moment and being grateful and being like, hey, I have all these things. This is amazing. Right, which doesn't mean you can't manifest new things into your life right. Right, by envisioning them and working towards them. But um, yeah, and I mean, I also think about like, you know, um, 
anxiety and, and depression and pain. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which people are are hurting. And mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, Buddhism offers an interesting way to kind of allow people to take control of uh, their own emotional turmoil in some way. I, I don't know if it will work for everyone, but when I was really, I mean, when I lived in New York, I was practicing pretty deeply and intently and arrived at a po- point where I could just kind of observe myself thinking and feeling and not needing to hook on to any of these things that were happening and I could kind of almost like clouds in the sky watch them go by and then so then who what is that essence that is always observing and can you kind of get closer to being in that kind of silent space which is not a it maybe is egoless but it doesn't it doesn't mean that you don't have a personality i think it's the place where your voice is most true and yes. unique for each person yes yeah yeah I, I, I didn't want to interrupt you but you you rhymed and i was like oh he's a poet he didn't know it oh, i did i didn't know because <laughs> you said you said clouds in the sky that just go by and i was like oh there we go <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. Um, I there was one more thing I wanted to um bring into the conversation. Um, and that is the aspect of activism. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's something that's always in the forefront of my mind because as a woman of color, like how can I not think about politics? How can I not think about social justice? I mean, it's in my everyday life. You know, every interaction I have is is informed by who I'm being and what my cultural and ethnic identity is. Mm. And so when I when I talk about spirituality and and writing and all this other stuff, I know the old version of me. And then also people who listen to my podcast, there's this question of like, well, what good is that in the face of activism? You know, like, what good is your like kumbaya, blah, blah, blah. You know, how is that going to change the world? Whatever. So I wanted to get your take on it and and ask you not only how does spirituality intersect or or can be partners with activism, but is there anything in your own life that you're noticing as well? Mm, yes. I mean, I think if used effectively, your spiritual practice absolutely kind of will inform you and give you strength and resilience when it comes to advocating. And I think it's, you know, part of who I am spiritually means I feel compelled to uh, give voice to the voiceless and uh, to help those marginalized communities as best I can. Like that is, you know, part of uh, the a kind of person that I want to be that comes out uh, directly from my sitting practice, I think. So mm-hmm. um, in that sense, I think there's a, a deep connection. And, you know, the the one thing I would say, and maybe I don't know how this would really transform advocacy, because I'm a, a big uh, advocate for all kinds of different changes that need to be made in society. But um, the notion of forgiveness, uh, I think is part of what has been hard for me. I mean, in in my own life, I feel like I've been fucked over by people who I have trusted and taken advantage of uh, by others and learning how to, to forgive them. And so when it comes to my activism as well, to, um, to fight um, not with a sense of uh, rage and hatred against those who might be perpetuating inequities, either consciously or unconsciously, but from a, a place of uh, kind of uh, um, a, a ruthless compassion, right? Or radical empathy or however you want to say it. So where you can actually kind of um, 
forgive and understand and try to help uh, move the conversation uh, forward, not in an antagonistic way. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a, maybe a way in which spiritual practice, because I mean, when I was younger, I would just be like, oh, yeah, you know, like, you know, fuck the white guy. He's just like, what is happening? And um, I think as I've gotten older, uh, my techniques have changed and adopted, hopefully to be uh, more skillful. So. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's the key there is this the spiritual component is about practicing who we are as individuals so that who we're being then dictates what how we interact with the larger world yeah but i mean of course you i mean there are some people who go, get so introspective in their spiritual journey that it makes them um politically active but that's not i we're going back to buddhism i like love the idea of the bodhisattva who's not someone who is going to who could have enlightenment and you know transcend but chooses to stay in this plane in order to help other people Right. right. That, that right. idea I really right. like. Right. Right. Yeah. And then there are those who take it to the extreme where they're like, I'm just going to sit in my room and kumbaya. Yes. <laughs> you know, and and it, and, it, and it ends up being a, a form of hiding. Um, and so, you know, this, this sort of escape, well, you know, I'm a spiritualist and so now I'm a pacifist, so I don't do anything. I just sit. And I'm like, okay, that's you, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Not yeah. <my> <laughs> But um, but anyway, so Robbie, this was amazing. I love talking to you. I always like, you know, our time at, at BCCA was so full of lots of great conversations. So I'm glad we got to do this this conversation for the podcast. Yeah, we didn't, I didn't know where it was going to go, but I kind of talked about things I wasn't expecting. And I think we got a little little gritty. So there's some spiritual yes. gritty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. Hey. And then Bailey wants to say hello, but I'll do it later. <laughs> um, so to close our episode, I, I like to end with a poem. Is there something that you would like to share with my listeners today? Uh, sure. You know what? Um, since we were talking about uh, your your soul name, Suyagiyan, uh, uh, I thought maybe, uh, and I was talking about um, being exposed to Sanskrit as a very young boy. Um, I have translated uh, um, something many of your uh, listeners might be familiar with, especially if they do yoga, the Gayatri Mantra, which Ooh. is a kind of a praise song to the sun and how you're meant to start off each day. It's very short. And so I'll, I'll read it to you first uh, in Sanskrit, uh, the Gayatri Mantra, which comes from the Rig Veda, um, one of the great uh, Indian spiritual texts. Mm. Om Bum Burswaha, Thatsa Vidavaranyam, Bargo Devas Yadimahi, Deo Yonaha Prajodayade. O manifest and unmanifest, wave and ray of breath, red lotus of insight, transfix us from eye to navel to throat. Under canopy of stars, spring from soil in an unbroken arc of light that we might immerse ourselves in until lit from within like the sun itself. Hmm. I love that. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, what a pleasure. So great to talk to you. Great. 
Oh, I love it. Well, thank you, Dr. Ravi Shankar, for coming on to my show. Um, and listeners, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. His new book coming is out now, Correctional. Go buy it. I haven't read it yet, but he told me about it, and it's freaking amazing. You need to go get it. Why? Because I said so. <laughs> um, you can get, I'll get all his information on the show notes. You can find him there. And um on Instagram, if you want to do a little- um, Yeah, I'm at Impurpler on the, the socials. On the socials. So that's E-M-P-U-R-P-L-E-R. Um, and yeah, and so we're going to close the episode as we always do. The divine light in me bows to the divine light in you. Until next time, namaste. Namaste. you're feeling like fighting the good fight is bringing you down and hope is starting to fade, grab my free seven-day meditative challenge, Spark Joy in Chaos, by signing up for my newsletter, which will be more light to your inbox. Go to suryagiyan.com slash subscribe.